The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thank you very much, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson, and here's what's ahead for this next hour. Follow the dollars, an exclusive look at how stimulus money was spread out among among Americans and where many of them spent it. Plus, copper, the new oil. That's what Goldman Sachs' Jeff Curry says as we move into a more eco-friendly world. He'll join us to explain that one. And throwing down the gauntlet, Mercedes-Benz goes after Tesla, saying its new EV sedan will beat Tesla's Model S. We'll show you the new car and speak with the U.S. CEO of Mercedes. But we begin with record-setting markets, as, as Scott just mentioned. And Dom Chu has the numbers. Hey, Dom. We are following all of those dollars right to those record highs, like you said, Tyler, because we have the Dow Industrials gets that big gold star there, hits a record intraday level today, up about 300 points, nearly 1% gains, 34,025 the last trade there. Again, a gold star for the S&P 500 as well, record highs for it, 4169, 1% gains there. But the gains are being led by the Nasdaq Composite overall, still, though, about 1% away from its own record. One thing to keep an eye on today from a macro side of things, you got to go all the way back to March, a little bit, a few weeks back before you saw interest rates at the level that we're seeing right now. We've pulled back significantly from the levels that we saw just about two or three weeks ago. Keep an eye on that, keep an eye on that 10-year note yield, 1.54% the last trade there. I will note for all those people who like to look at averages, 1.5% is the 50-day average price on a rolling basis for that index move. So check out the 10-year Treasury note yield. And then Coinbase, it's day two. Featured heavily on this program just yesterday because of its initial debut. Those Coinbase shares up another 1% right now, well off the session highs, as you can see there. But at one point at the highs yesterday, it was worth roughly $112 billion on one measure of market value. So, again, we'll keep an eye on that. Remember, Kathy Wood's ARK Invest bought about $250 million worth of those shares in trading yesterday. And, of course... The guys over at BTIG, those analysts say that it's a $500 stock. Tyler, with a buy rating, keep an eye on Coinbase. I'll send things back over to you. All right. We're going to have more on Coinbase uh, later this hour during our rapid fire segment. Meantime, uh, the uh, latest batch of stimulus checks sent out this week brings the total number of payments to about 159 million recipients since March. That's nearly $400 billion in stimulus cash. But who are the beneficiaries? Steve Leisman joins us now with the latest from the results of the CNBC All-America Economic Survey. Take it away, Steve. Tyler, thanks. An astonishing seven out of 10 Americans say they've received some form of assistance from the government over the past year during this pandemic, a number that looks to have shown up in today's very strong retail sales report and could keep showing up in economic data in the months ahead. The CNBC All-America Economic Survey, 802 Americans polled around the country find 69 percent say they received government assistance in the past year compared to 31 percent who said they did not. Obviously, more on the lower income spectrum there. The largest source of those funds, the direct depositor checks from Uncle Sam. Nine percent, though, saying they received unemployment benefits of smaller shares receiving reported receiving uh, nutritional or rental assistance or small business loans. That assistance could be part of the reason the economic outlook has brightened uh, from the last quarter. 44% of the public think 
say they think the economy will get better in the next year, up from 38 percent in our December survey. Clearly, government aid has played a critical role in keeping the economy afloat and prospering during the pandemic. And high savings rates, along with vaccinations and people getting back to work, that could propel, Tyler, spending in the months ahead. Steve, do we know, uh, as part of your survey, where this money that people got went? Did they spend it, save it? How much of it trickled into stocks? Yeah, actually, Tyler, we have uh, some, some good detail on that. What we find is that people seem to have acted, I guess, for lack of a better term, reasonably responsibly with this money. 47% say it went into housing or utilities really and food, really just essentials there. 36% say it went into the bank. 36% say it paid down debt. By the way, you could answer more than one answer on this. That's why it doesn't add up to 100 10% said non-essentials like travel or dining out. Obviously, the opportunities to use money for that was limited. Donations or charity, about 10% went to that. And there's just that... Small number, 6%. I guess it adds up over time, given the amounts we're talking about. But just about 6% say they put money into the stock market from that stimulus money, Tyler. All right. Thank you very much, Steve. Steve Leisman. Uh, Stimulus checks are just one reason why BlackRock CEO Larry Fink is bullish on the markets right now, even if only 6% of people are putting money into stocks or mutual funds. Here's what he said on Squawk Box earlier. I'm very enthusiastic, though, whether the money is coming from a, 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 a stimulus check or is coming from savings or behavior changes for savings. I think it's fantastic that we're seeing more people uh, either investing for the long term or even trading. And joining us now, Lori Calvacina, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC Capital Markets. And James McDonald is CEO and chief investment officer at Hercules Investment. Welcome to both of you. Glad to have you with us. Lori, let me start with you. Uh, is, is there just too daggone much bullishness in the market right now? You've got the S&P and the Dow at all-time highs yet again today. You know, it's a great question, Ty. And we see that in all of the sentiment indicators we track, whether it's retail investors, institutional investors, everything is sort of hovering at around all-time highs. One exception to that is an investor survey I did a couple weeks ago where it was really fascinating. We saw economic bullishness skyrocket. It was more than 90% that had gone bullish on the economy over the next 6 to 12 months. That was up from the 70s in December. But at the same time, we saw those bullish on the equity market on the same time frame slip from 60% to 50%. And as I talk to investors, I find that I, I don't find a lot of bears out there in my client conversations, but there is some concern that perhaps a lot of the good news is baked in already. And so it wasn't surprising to me that we saw that, that optimism come in just a teeny tiny little bit. Uh, James, why don't you react to what uh, Lori just said? You see it the same way? Well, clearly the bullishness is showing up in the new all-time highs that persist. What we've seen in the past 12 months obviously has been unprecedented. And there's the paradox in the Q4 of 2020, where as things got really, really dark for the statistics on COVID, Fed stepped up and reiterated their commitment to provide support. I think that provided a lot of optimism uh, about monetary policy, then when we got the vaccine, that euphoria has continued through. Uh, we've seen record trends across the indexes, particularly small caps, uh, large caps, and including tech. Uh, we've seen trends this year. We've had five major uptrends, uh, two 7% trends. The one we're on right now is approaching 8% now. Uh, these are record rallies on top of uh, a 12-year bull market that uh, came just before the collapse last year with COVID. And so now we're way above those highs of that bull market. We've never seen a recovery 
uh, from a market correction or a market pullback that fast. Did we have a bear market is the question. And if we did have a bear market, uh, that was the shortest bear market in history. And so we've got to really be concerned about valuations here. We've really got to be concerned about momentum. Um, most of the good news, I think, pushed uh, markets to this high. And we clearly have to see what good news will continue to allow this market to continue to go up uh, without a pause or without a pullback. Lori, you seem to be a little worried about uh, the Biden tax increases and what effect they may have on stock values and the performance of corporations. But judging from what the S&P is saying today and the Dow is saying today, it seems like investors aren't worried. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I have been talking about corporate taxes much more than I would care to. Um, it's, it's not my favorite topic, but it comes up in every single client conversation that I have and really has since January. So I think the investors I speak with are quite worried about it, the impact on earnings, what the reverberations are in valuation. Um, we just did an analysis, and, and, the, and the big punchline of it is I think that the risks are starting to get baked in now. The market's not ignoring it at the broader market level, but it is starting to factor it in through rotation. Um, and so if you look at the stocks that benefited the most from the Trump tax cuts, um, they've actually started to underperform since late February. Now, that hasn't dented the market. It just has fueled some of the rotation within it. So we think it's starting to get expressed. Um, but this market has just been so resilient, it's been able to absorb it. James, I saw you nodding there. But let me switch uh, to another topic that I think is very interesting. You, whether it is part of the uh, Biden infrastructure push or something different, you see kind of a golden age for capital spending in the U.S., Explain. Right. And so the pandemic is hastened trends toward onshoring production and raising domestic capital investment by U.S. companies, possibly to the highest levels since the 80s. And CapEx has been falling sharply amid the globalization of supply chains. But the expectation is that these trends are going to reverse, caused by record low costs of capital, rising consumer and investor demand. Uh, and the renewed public policy focus on national security and industrial policy. And so the major and unexpected beneficiaries from the new infrastructure plan include tech hardware, industrial automation, engineering, real estate, healthcare, uh, and electric vehicles. And we think the winners are going to be materials, R&D defense, and uh, they've been left out from this big rally. And so the CapEx boom, we think, is expected to benefit small businesses and labor uh, as each new manufacturing job creates 7.4 new jobs elsewhere in the real economy. All right, folks, thank you very much. Lloyd Calvacina, always good to see you. James McDonald, nice to uh, see you as well. Coming up, while crude is at a monster rally this year, up 30%, Goldman Sachs, head of commodities, says copper, copper is the new oil. He'll explain that to us next. Plus, after a blowout debut, Coinbase treading water a bit today. After briefly turning negative, we will look at what Wall Street is saying when we return after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager.
Copper has hit its highest level in a month and is on pace now for its best week since February. The commodity's expanding use in green energy technology has many analysts saying it has room to run. In fact, our next guest says copper could get as high as 15,000 a metric ton and calls it the new oil. Joining us now, Jeff Curry, Goldman Sachs head of commodities research. Jeff, it's always great to see you. Um, I guess one of the basic questions I have is if demand does what you think it's going to do as part of, of the new clean energy economy, is there going to be enough supply there to uh, support it? I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, whether it's the current pipeline of greenfield projects, which are entirely inadequate, the lack of maintenance capex that we're seeing right now for current production, and also overall inventories at a 10-year low. So there's absolutely no buffer in the system to accommodate this demand. We like to say the industry's sleepwalking straight into what looks to be an obvious increase in demand. How, uh, uh, how long does it take to get a new mine up and running and where is the supply around the world? Who owns it? Is it African countries? Is it China? Is it the U.S.? Where? Well, that's the one thing about uh, copper. It's one of the commodity, last of the old school commodities that you still have to dig out of the ground that takes somewhere between five to 10 years to bring on new supply. Um, so the fact that you have nothing in the pipeline today is very meaningful when you think about the deficits that could arise in the second half of this decade. So where is this located? Um, it's very geographically narrowly distributed. Um, it's primarily in places in the Andes, you know, Peru, Chile, and that's where the vast majority of it is. And then places in you know, Southern Africa like the DRC. Um, so when we think about, you know, calling it the new oil, you know, places like Chile become um, the, you know, the new Saudi Arabia and, you know, the DRC becomes the new Venezuela. So it's also very narrowly distributed. Yeah. And, and uh, obviously some of those countries are not exactly the paragons of stability no. uh, at all. Um, so explain to, to, to me and to the viewers why copper is so central to uh, the EV world, the world of greener energy to getting to the Paris Climate Accord numbers. Why is it so important? Yeah, because we're going to rely upon electricity to create our transportation, heat our houses, and you know, propel industrial activities, copper is the single best conductor of electricity um, known to physics as well as the periodic table. So if we're going to electrify the world, and decarbonize that way, we absolutely need copper to do it. So another way to say it, copper becomes the strategically most important commodity, um, taking over that role from oil. And the similarities with oil are, are striking. And it's very important to the EVs as well as to the overall power grid. So are there, well, let's, let's get the simple question here. Where are prices now per ton and where do you see them trending over the next six to eight years? Well, right now they're trading around you know $9,300 a ton. You know, it's a big run-up in the last couple of, of days. And I think you've got the reflation trade being put back on as we see it across the board in the commodity complex. Um, now, when we think about where, how this plays out, the real tightness is likely to happen over the next 12 to 18 months. You know, you have the rebound in economic activity with the vaccine rollout in you know, the post-COVID era. You have no inventories. You can't accommodate that type of demand increase. The real problems start around 2024, 2025, when we have all that green CapEx spending begin to start to accelerate. 
Um, so in terms of thinking about, you know, the upside, we see it moving into that eleven dollars to $12,000 a ton range over the next 12 to 24 months. But we see it when we start talking your point of, you know, five years out, plus we're seeing it moving up to around 15000 The all-time high in real terms was 1968 at $14,000 a ton. A, you know, an environment similar to today in the sense that you had LBJ roll out the Great Society and we have the same type of spending programs going on in the current environment. And so it's going to, it's going to eclipse that, uh, that record number, you would say, uh, very quickly. Uh, maybe it's a dumb question, but are there any substitutes for copper in, in the uses that are going to drive demand? That's what makes it very different from oil. I like to say the setup today is similar to what oil looked like in 2002. Now, the difference is we knew shale existed. We knew that there was gas to liquids in these alternative energy sources. The only thing that I have heard of at this point are these graphite type of technologies, which have never been extended outside of a laboratory. Also very, very expensive. So synthetic materials to conduct electricity, Mm -hmm. the only real substitutes out there, and they're at price levels much higher. Now you're going to go, wait, hey, what about um, aluminum? Aluminum works well when you're conducting electricity in the air over very long distance, big transmission cables, it's fine. The problem is when you get into densely populated areas, you need to go underground. You have to have copper. Otherwise, that aluminum begins to ground. So in terms of thinking about aluminum substitution, there's really, excuse me, a copper substitution. There's really nothing out there other than some of these very expensive graphite type technologies. Fascinating conversation. Jeff Curry, thanks for the advice, the insight. See you again soon. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks for having me. You bet. And coming up, Mercedes-Benz playing catch-up in the electric vehicle space. We were just talking about a little bit there with a new lineup. But despite being late to the game, they say they are ready to take on Musk. Elon, watch out. We are going to speak to the company's U.S. CEO about the new cars, the competition, the semiconductor shortage, and consumer demand. And don't forget, you can watch us live on the app. The Exchange will be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. It has been a record-setting day once again uh, for a couple of the market barometers, most pointedly uh, the industrials and the S&P 500. The industrials were above 34,000 uh, for much of the morning. I think the uh, peak was 34,035. Now it's slipped back just a little bit, uh, about four points below the 34,000. That's the first time it's been at that level, of course, ever. Uh, S&P uh, up about 1%, and so is NASDAQ. Let's check some of the sectors. Uh, and as you see behind me, uh, eight out of 11 of the S&P sectors are higher. The only laggards today are financials and energy. Energy down about 1.2 percent. Healthcare the leader today with technology not har- far behind. Let's look at some of the movers this hour, beginning with uh, Virgin Galactic. It is lower as uh, the founder 
Sir Richard Branson sold more than $150, $150 million. It was $150. It wouldn't make a difference. $150 million of the company's stock over the past three days. And shares of Rite Aid are lower despite a beat on the top and bottom line. The management continuing to flag pressures from a softer cold and flu season. At least something went right. And uh, take a look at some of the payment and payroll-related stocks. They are holding up well today with global payments hitting an all-time high, higher by more than 2%. Finally, a quick check on today's IPO. That would be the mobile app company AppLovin falling in its debut, opening at $70 in the last hour after pricing at $80. AppLovin now at $67.67. Rahel Solomon has a news update for us. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Tyler. And you are truly one of a kind. Uh, the NCAA has hit USC's men's basketball program with a two-year probation over ethics violations by a former assistant who accepted bribes to steer players to a business management company. In just over three hours, President Biden is expected to give remarks on Russia. The speech comes after the U.S. announced expanded Russia sanctions to all the Kremlin responsible for the solar winds hacks. And get the latest on the increasing tension between the U.S. and Russia tonight on the News with Shepard Smith. Losses are piling up across France's winemaking regions. A rare late frost has hit 80 percent of vineyards in the top producing areas. And the Rhone Valley, they're predicting the smallest harvest in 40 years, up to 90 percent below normal levels. And in Britain, Prince William and Prince Harry will not walk side by side as they follow their grandfather's coffin into the church ahead of Prince Philip's funeral on Saturday. The decision is seen as a move to try to minimize awkward moments between the brothers whose relationships have been strained since Harry's decision to step away from royal duties. Tyler, you're up to date. I'll send it back to you. There will be a lot of people watching that funeral and watching the body language for sure. Thank you, Rahel. Coinbase experiences technical issues in its second day of trading and vaccine passport pushback. And Netflix is going to teach users... How to sleep. All that and more in today's Rapid Fire. But first, it's time for Show and Tell. We show a chart and then tell the story. Today's chart is Pepsi. Uh, It's slightly higher after beating on the top and bottom line. Here's CFO Hugh Johnston on rising costs and how they are able to manage them. We actually do a fair amount of forward buying on our commodities. So uh, we are relatively better insulated compared to most of our our peer group in that regard. We tend to buy forward at at about a nine month clip. Uh, There's clearly a bit of cost pressure in the P&L, but we put pricing in place in anticipation of that. So I think we're well positioned to, to handle that as we manage our way through. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should. Maybe they are already on your radar screen. It is screen. It's time for rapid fire here to break down the headlines. Deirdre Boza, Seema Modi, and a late entry. Dominic Chu, thank you for joining us one and all. First topic, shares of Coinbase on a bit of a roller coaster today, really just like uh, Coinbase, Coin, the Bitcoin itself, perhaps because of some reported technical issues. But it's higher again after its debut yesterday. It hit a valuation of $100 billion, 
uh, yesterday, but it's well off that level now. And the coverage initiations have started. BTIG putting a buy rating and a $500 price target on shares. That's nearly 50% higher than current level says. Coinbase is the gold standard of uh, digital exchanges and should be uh, the biggest winner from the Bitcoin boom. Deandra, what's your reaction to how Coinbase is trading, how it, how it came out yesterday, and what people are saying about it now? My reaction is that it doesn't matter all that much because this is certainly one story that is all about the long term. I mean, I'm glad to hear analysts switch up their language a little bit. The gold standard of crypto exchanges. I've also been heard from many people it being the Google of crypto. Um, that remains to be seen. But the moment, the marquee moment of seeing a crypto company go public is about its use cases in the future. It's about blockchain. It's about decentralized finance. It's not necessarily about where Bitcoin or Coinbase itself is trading today. This, I, I think you hit a, an important point there, and that is that blockchain is really the, the nub of this whole thing. Whether, and, and, and whether it's a Bitcoin or some other thing or NFTs. Our friend Jason Trenner uh, sent me a note the other day, uh, Dom, about, about Bitcoin. And he said the threat to Bitcoin is regulatory, specifically that governments don't like it. They don't like the idea because it impedes their ability to collect taxes and that ultimately they see it as an existential threat to them, to the government and to their currencies. What say you? I'm not sure because Coinbase is already issuing 1099s to many of their clients right now, showing profits and what they've made so far on trading those platforms. Uh, governments may not like it because they don't understand it. They don't know it yet. But what it, what it does is it legitimizes cryptocurrency in that world when governments do put more scrutiny on it. You can almost argue that many of these companies want a little bit more scrutiny, want a little bit more regulation. It seems so counterintuitive. But if that happens, it's like the government saying, OK, we get you kind of, but we're going to tax you. That means we acknowledge the fact that you exist and that you are legitimate in your operating entities. That's going to be a big deal for sure. And if they keep doing that, and by the way, digital wallets, when I first signed up for a digital wallet years ago, there was no identity kind of check, anything like that. These days, for many of the most popular digital wallets that you sign up for out there, in order for you to transact or move any of that cryptocurrency around, you have to have a layer of know your customer protection in there. You've got to submit copies of your driver's license, photo IDs, government IDs, something like that. So that could be part of the story that this next evolution, Tyler, will be about governments getting to know the crypto world a little bit better. All right, Seema, a, a final thought from you. Jason also points out that it can be a threat to a, a government's ability to uh, manage monetary policy, these cryptocurrencies. And speaking of monetary policy, Tyler, some of the biggest names in government and central banks, from Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, to Christine Lagarde of the ECB, have been sounding the alarm around cryptocurrencies and the need for more regulation to be laid out, uh, calling on Bitcoin being used to fund illicit transactions and terrorist financing. So, so there's still a cohort of individuals who do not uh, are not approving the use of cryptocurrencies. And I think you're still going to see that infighting continue. Well... Jason concludes by saying Bitcoin is going to go up until someone stops it. We'll see. It's going up. Uh, not today, but it's been going up a lot. Next up, a growing list of lawmakers, mostly in Republican-led states, are fighting back against requiring proof of COVID vaccination to travel or enter certain uh, venues, claiming it is a violation of privacy. 
while it's not a majority opinion, it could have widespread impact as we try to get back to, quote, normal life here in the United States. Seema, you've been following this story for us. Uh, it goes to questions of can cruise lines require a so-called uh, vaccination passport to get on? Can restaurants do it? Uh, can states ban companies from it from doing that? Or do companies have a wide latitude in, in determining, particularly those in transport, in determining who can travel and who can't? It's become a huge debate right now, Tyler, across the nation and largely uh, Republican opposition saying South Dakota governor saying that the use of a vaccine passport would be, quote, un-American. You have Florida's governor DeSantis citing privacy issues and Governor Kemp of Georgia, who I spoke to last week, who says he, too, he's already facing a lot of heat around his controversial voting law. Uh, also joining this group of Republicans who do not approve the use of a vaccine uh, vaccine passport, excuse Excuse me. And caught in the middle of all this are these travel companies, more of them now saying that we do think a vaccine passport is key to lifting international travel restrictions and also allowing events, sporting leagues, weddings, conferences to really resume earlier rather than later. Uh, so this debate will continue. And, you know, when you look at where Americans are allowed to travel right now, there are a handful of countries, but many do require proof of vaccination. Deirdre, jump in. Well, once you politicize this issue, what's key is that you're unlikely to see sort of a big tech company, which may be in the best position to sort of roll out a vaccine passport, do so because they don't want any more scrutiny. So what you're going to have now is this proliferation of different apps and different vaccines passports that may not necessarily work with each other, that may not have the best privacy protection. So it's a messy subject. I'm not saying it shouldn't be politicized, but tech's role in this is going to be very important. I think that um, what Seema just laid out makes it difficult to imagine that tech, big tech at least, is going to get involved. And even if they did, Tyler, remember the Apple-Google partnership on contact tracing that was hailed as sort of unprecedented partnership? It didn't go anywhere. It, it, did, it went nowhere. It, it, it amounted to nothing. Uh, it's, this has become uh, not just a, 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 a battle between the vaxxers and anti-vaxxers. It's become a, a, a political question about, about freedom. Governor DeSantis of, uh, of uh, Florida saying, you have a right to live your life in our society. You can go to a restaurant, get on a cruise ship. Uh, you, you can go to a movie theater without the company demanding that you show them your health information. Final thought, Dom, very quickly. Why not just focus on testing passports? Forget about the vaccine passports. We've been using testing passports this entire pandemic. Just prove that you've taken a test and it's negative and do whatever you want. All right. We'll move on now to uh, Uber. Uh, Uber is driving employees toward returning to the office, saying expects office staff to report in person at least three days a week starting in September. Uber claims a hybrid model gives employees the freedom to do their best work from anywhere. It's been a mixed bag of return to work plans for the tech companies. Last month, Amazon announced a return to an office-centric culture once the pandemic ends, and while Twitter told staffers to stay at home as it focuses on decentralizing its workforce. Uh, this is an area, uh, obviously, Deirdre, that you're following very closely. Many more companies have to make decisions soon. A lot of them are going to the Uber sort of three-and-two model. Yeah, some notable ones. Alphabet Google was uh, certainly one that said you have to at least live close to the office. But there has really been this divide. Everyone agrees that there's going to be some kind of hybrid future of work. But the extent of that is still very much being you know, decided upon in different ways by different companies. 
One thing that some might argue regarding the Uber and Google model is that if you require employees to come in and live close to the office, that's going to limit your talent pool. They can't start to hire people from Austin or Miami or Seattle or other places that are seeing this growing tech presence. Um, so they could be cutting their nose off despite their face. But of course, those that say uh, they should be coming into the office on a regular basis say there's no substitute for face-to-face innovation. You know, it's fa- it, it's really interesting, Seema, because earlier in the pandemic, and, and, and certainly now as well, a lot of CHROs, chief people officers, CEOs were saying, you know, what? one of the things we've learned that has been a benefit of the work at home or work from anywhere is that our talent pool is then literally global. We can go anywhere. We can tap into workers no matter where they live or no matter what their personal circumstances are. So there may be caregivers who live in Arkansas, not in, uh, in, in Menlo Park, who could be recruited to do work and are ready to work, but because they're giving care to either children or adults uh, at home, they couldn't do it but for working at home. And that's what makes this decision around companies now over time requiring employees to come back to the office um, such a, a complex issue to get around, especially when you have caregivers and others who are still Uh, have kids at home who aren't back in school. So this is why this is such a loaded topic. But I think what Uber is announcing here is a conversation that is happening across a lot of companies with this vaccine rollout gathering pace. When is the right time to issue a communication to employees and sort of unveil our our back-to-work plan? Yeah, it's going to be very, very, very tricky and, and very hard to get right and 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 the trick for managers and and leaders, whether you're CEO or, or a middle manager, is how can I be fair to everybody? And it's going to be hard. All right. Finally, Netflix uh, first taught us how binge watching of content for hours and hours could work. And now it wants to teach us how to end our day, too. Let's listen in. Falling asleep isn't that easy. I'm Eve and I'm here to help. It's teaming up with the meditation app Headspace to launch a new series on how to get a good night's sleep. The seven-part series launches April 28th. It includes 15-minute episodes on topics from busting sleep myths to mindfulness and meditation. Ironically, experts say the leading cause of modern-day insomnia is, you guessed it, Dom, too much screen time. I think it's true. When, I, when I'm, I'm paying attention to my phone right before I go to bed, I often have a hard time. When I'm reading a boring book, I fall asleep. You know, it's the worst thing. The, the worst feeling is I wake up sometimes with a sense of nervousness or anxiety in the middle of the night. And the first thing I do is I check my smartphone and then I linger on it for five or ten minutes. And then I really can't go back, back to sleep. So, so here's what it comes down to. This is all about wellness. There's a huge focus on it going forward. Netflix is actually smart to be doing something like this because there's a huge amount of interest in this kind of thing from generations all the way, all across the spectrum. I know that one of the things that I did, I, I bought one of those kind of percussion mis- uh, massage guns, Tyler, mm. a Theragun. Oh, and, yeah. And one of the, I don't know if you have one, but one of the functions on there is an app-driven program for how you can use that to help you sleep better at night. It gives you a whole program. I think this is going to be a big trend for many tech companies and content companies that's, going forward. That's, that's interesting. I have not bought one just out of the fear of seeing my fat jiggle as much as it, uh, as it, as it no doubt would. <laughs> Do it in the privacy of your own home. It's going to be fine. And on that note, ladies and gentlemen, we have a news alert that I've got to go to. Thanks, guys. All righty. Kate Rooney has the details on Robin Hood. Hey, Kate. 
Hey, Tyler, Robinhood hitting back at the state of Massachusetts. The trading app filed an injunction just now against the Commonwealth. This is in response to a complaint filed in December, which accused Robinhood of violating the state's fiduciary rule. That original complaint accused Robinhood of using, quote, aggressive tactics for inexperienced investors, using gamification, they say, to manipulate customers and failure to prevent some of those outages on its platform. Robinhood here today is essentially arguing that the state didn't have the authority to enforce that law. The startup says that the new rule violates state and federal law. In addition, they say that there's no legitimate basis to apply this rule to Robinhood. They also say there's a a conflict here with SEC rules, Dodd-Frank, and the First Amendment. And Tyler, Robinhood also had changed parts of its app after some criticism about the platform that came out in that complaint. For one, they stopped using confetti to celebrate so celebrate trades. Tyler, back to you. All right, Kate Rooney, thank you very much. News update there on Robin Hood. Coming up, Mercedes finally ready to take on Tesla, unveiling its first true electric vehicle for the U.S. The CEO of Mercedes-Benz USA will join us to discuss what makes their version different. That's next. There's a new electrical vehicle on the block, Mercedes-Benz, uh, Benz, to unveil its first true EV for the U.S. market, signaling that it is ready to take on Tesla. Here we come. And here comes Phil LeBeau with what's uh, under the hood and a special guest. Hey, Phil. <laughs> under wraps, Tyler. I am here at the Mercedes-Benz headquarters with Dimitri Zalakis, who is the president of Mercedes-Benz USA. Let's do this. Let's take off the wraps on the EQS Absolutely. and show everybody what you just officially unveiled within the last hour. Uh, this is a sedan that people are going to look at and they're going to say, all right, I definitely see Mercedes-Benz here. But perhaps I'm a little bit surprised at every feature that is in here. And we're going to go inside in just a little bit. What are you shooting for with the EQS? I think here's the first Mercedes electric. So electric now has its Mercedes and it does not have any Mercedes. It has an S-Class. S-Class stands for our flagship. And now on the electric era, we have our flagship, the EQS. Do us a favor. Take us inside here, especially as you open the door here. Note this, Tyler. Watch this. The door opens itself. Dimitri, hop in and we want to come around the car and give people some perspective. On the inside, you have gone above and beyond in terms of what you're expecting for communication and infotainment. Tell us about the MBUX hyperscreen here, because I think people, they've seen some pictures. This is one of the innovations that the um, EQS is bringing, and I think it's fascinating. This is blowing minds. It's the uh, hyperscreen, 56-inch dash uh, dashboard. The entire dashboard, basically. And it has three individual screens, each one, uh, capable of uh, infotainment navigation and especially for the uh, co-driver you can have emails films whatever now you know some people will look at this right here and they'll say if a movie is playing here i don't want the person driving watching it how do you keep that from happening phil you know pretty well that mercedes-benz stands for safety so that would not be possible the driver has to focus on the uh, central screen on, on the one in the middle he cannot look on the screen on the side so these are all taken care uh, by mercedes let me have you step out for a second here, Dimitri. There will be people who will watch this, and they will say, okay, you're going to start this. You haven't announced a price yet, but it's likely going to be six figures, at least the initial ones, over 100000 And when you look at this, you will say, 
how much of this market can you bring the price down? How quickly can you bring it down to the seventy, the sixty thousand dollar range in your other models? This is our flagship electric car. Okay, so this has technologies, has size, has design, has qualities, which bring the car to the upper price range. But we're coming up with uh, new models in, in next year, which will be priced lower than the than the EQS. We talk about the EQE. We talk about EQE SUV and we talk about the EQS SUV, which will also come in the market in 2022. So there's a whole range to fit more customers' uh, capabilities. You and I were talking before the interview about the market right now. It is red hot, but you said it could be even hotter if you could supply more vehicles. The chip shortage, how much is that hampering or holding back your sales right now? I would say that the uh, U.S. is on the positive side because uh, based on the flexibility that our factories are showing, the Tascaloosa factory, uh, which is producing GLE, GLS here, is doing pretty well and is catching up with the rhythm uh, of the market. But definitely we have a lot of work behind us uh, because the shortage is a headache for, all the, for, the, for the whole industry. Does it lag into, does it continue into the fall? Do you expect it continuing to the end of this year? When do we finally say, okay, we're seeing the supply that the automakers want to build? We cannot predict that. We're still uh, uh, struggling as, as industry, but as I said before, we're handling well, managing and, and prioritizing uh, our, our production based on the flexibility we have in our production lines. One last question about uh, the EQS and your electric vehicles. You're eventually going to be building them here in the United States. This one is going to be imported from Germany. Right. Will you do battery production here in the U.S.? Yes. The plan is that so we localize production for a couple of our cars, and a battery factory is being uh, in, 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 in preparation to supply the batteries for our electric vehicles in the, in the U.S. Dimitri Zalakis, this president of Mercedes-Benz USA, this is, wow. You guys, a, a car that you're going to want to see when you get a chance up close. Thank you very much for Jump joining us. Jump in and drive it, Phil. I, I may just do that right this, now. Send I, it back to you, Tyler. Truly a beautiful car. Congratulations on that, and we hope to see more of them. Uh, really lovely looking. Fantastic. Phil, thank you. Uh, and uh, if you're looking for other ways to play electric vehicles, Credit Suisse has picked EV-related stocks that could benefit as they gain popularity. Texas Instruments, Lear Corporation, that's just two of the names mentioned there. You can get the whole list on CNBC.com pro. And still ahead, real estate is hot. High-end homes in Florida could be close to overheating. We'll get a look at what that could mean for the continued wealth migration to the Sunshine State. That's next. And April is Financial Literacy Month. CNBC committed to sharing messages from business and thought leaders about the importance of financial education. Here's former president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, Richard Fisher. The more educated you are in school, the more you learn the basics, not only of finance and the simple things about finance, but also mathematics. These are the well-known paths to success in our system. And those that master them, or at least understand them, do well in the United States, in our capitalist system. And it will always be that way. Well, the snowbirds may be sort of migrating from Florida now that winter is over up north here, but the luxury real estate market in the Sunshine State appears to be reaching a breaking point, even for the wealthy. Robert Frank has that story for us. What are you finding, Robert? 
Well, Tyler, we thought this whole migration to Florida would have slowed by now. We're a year into the pandemic, but higher taxes, safety concerns, empty office buildings in New York, raising fears about an increased flight from New York. BlackRock's Larry Fink saying this morning on CNBC that companies like his, they have choices and so do the workers. I truly believe this is going to lead to incremental movement of people and businesses away from the city. We've already witnessed in 2020, New York has been the largest um, outflow of population of any state. Now, numbers this morning showing that outflow, at least into Florida, just increasing and could actually now become structural. Let's look at Palm Beach. The average home price there topping nine and a half million dollars. Sales increasing nearly 50 percent despite those high prices in the first quarter. There is now less than a two month supply of houses for sale in Palm Beach. That is a record low. We've got Miami Beach average sale prices there up 72 percent with condos in South Beach more than doubling in price in the quarter. You got prices up double digits in Boca, Wellington, Bal Harbor, Delray, all across southern Florida. Brokers say demand is quickly outstripping supply, even with wealthy buyers. And those are people, a lot of them moving from higher tax states. And one of those emigres, Guggenheim, Scott Minard, confirming to CNBC that he is taking his talents and his taxes from California to Miami. Tell her we're going to have Jeff Green, the billionaire investor, on tomorrow on Power Lunch. He's actually looking at what may be a correction in Florida. So we'll talk to him about that call and what he's seeing with this whole migration to the Sunshine State. You know, we spent my wife and I spent some time in Naples, Florida uh, over the winter in January. And, and it's not just the East Coast. It's obviously on the West Coast as well. Naples is extraordinarily affluent. Um, and there is a lot of supply coming online. There, there's a lot of stuff being built. Let me just point out one thing. If the ma- and we kind of got bitten by the bug. If the Mathesons buy, okay, that will be the top tick in the market. I promise you. The market will peak <laughs> within, within, within four weeks, not four months, of the Mathesons purchasing. But well, there is you, a lot of supply when you coming open on. The Nap- Go ahead. And when you open the Naples Bureau, Tyler, sign me up. Uh, that sounds like a, a great gig. Uh, no, you're right. There is some supply coming online. Um, but again, the, the demand is just outstripping it in all these communities. And, and can they keep up? We're going to see in the second quarter. And that conversation with Jeff tomorrow will be interesting because he's got projects all over southern Florida. So he's looking at that pipeline. Another thing you wonder about, I mean, obviously, there is the, the no tax deal in Florida is a big appeal there. But as more and more people come in, they're going to find, I think, some infrastructure requirements that are going to be expensive to meet, whether it's new schools or whether it's new roads or new garages, etc. Yeah, one word, Tyler, traffic. It's not yep. fun in Florida right now, and that's going to be an issue. All right, Robert, thank you very much. We can dream. We can dream. Again, the Matheson rule, Matheson buys, prices peak. That does it for The Exchange, folks. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. 
absolutely, positively FedEx. 